0: According to the legend, a single drop of water changed the course of Jewish history. We find a shepherd tending his flocks in the Judean hillside. He was a simple man, a son of the rural poor, of no notable lineage, impoverished, uneducated, indeed entirely illiterate. He was 40 years old, and this was his life. But as he tended his flock, he stopped to drink from a spring, and he noticed something— drops of water were steadily falling on a large rock, and where they landed, a deep hole had been gouged in the stone. He wondered who had carved this hole in the stone, and a voice answered him. Did he not recall the words from the book of Job? Water erodes stone, said the voice. At that moment, this illiterate shepherd had a revelation. If something soft can carve something hard, then all the more so the words of Torah— which are like steel, can engrave themselves on my heart. He realized that if he studied Torah little by little, drop by drop, eventually the teaching would penetrate to his heart. And so he began. First, the first letter of the alphabet, the Aleph. Then the second letter, the Bet. And so on until he mastered the letters. Then he turned to the book of Leviticus and learned that too. And then he learned the whole Torah. And then he went to study with the great masters of his time, and when they gave him one law, he studied it, picked it apart, developed his own insights, so they gave him another to study, and another. Eventually, it is said, he reduced his teachers to silence. They said of him, he has brought to light things which are kept hidden from human beings. And thus, says the Talmud, were the origins of the great Rabbi Akiva. If you were to compile a list of the most admired figures in Jewish history, Rabbi Akiva would compete for the top spot. On the one hand, we know a great deal about him. He's quoted more than a thousand times in the Talmud. On the other hand, it's hard to pick apart legend from historical fact. Many of the stories about him and the sayings attributed to him were collected over a couple centuries before being written down, and written by his most adoring admirers, who may therefore have taken certain liberties with their attributions. Still, when it comes to Rabbi Akiva, it's best to proceed as if the stories are true, for within the legends is one of the most influential Jewish leaders who ever lived. I'm your host Jason Harris, and welcome back to Jew ought to know. He would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. As the unlettered shepherd pondered the impact of water on stone, dark forces were coming for nearby Jerusalem. He didn't know it, but they would propel his destiny. Akiva was born sometime around the year 50 of the Common Era. By the late 60s, the Jews of Jerusalem erupted in open revolt against the oppressive Roman occupation. War followed. In the year 70 came the most devastating blow of Jewish history, the sacking of Jerusalem and the destruction of the Second Temple, never to rise again. Hundreds of thousands of Jews were slaughtered in the city, still many more permanently exiled, the Jewish holy places reduced to rubble. But a few Jewish sages managed to escape the carnage and set about remaking a Judaism that now didn't need the temple, didn't need the required animal sacrifices, and could survive without access to the holy places. The answer was the Torah. More specifically, on the idea that deep study and interpretation of the Torah would yield all the knowledge that anyone would need to follow Jewish law. Because it was driven by these learned men, who were called rabbis, it became known as Rabbinic Judaism, and it's the form of Judaism that we have today. These rabbis set up academies to train future scholars and kept a close eye out for promising talent. Meanwhile, the shepherd Akiva had fallen in love with the farmer's daughter, literally the daughter of the wealthy landowner who employed him. Her name may have been Rachel, but we can't really say. Rachel made Akiva a secret offer. In exchange for her hand, he would have to leave the farm to go study in one of these academies, to make himself into the great scholar that she knew he was destined to be. Akiva took the deal. When Rachel's father found out, he disowned her for marrying beneath her station. For the next 12 years, Rachel lived alone while Akiva was off studying. He eventually came back, with 12,000 of his students in tow. But as he approached the home, he overheard his father-in-law arguing with Rachel. How long, her father wanted to know, how long would she live like a widow waiting for her no-good husband to return? If it were up to me, she yelled back at her father, he would sit and study for another twelve years. Well then, Akiba did not need any further prompting from this enormous, meritable loophole. He and his entourage rapidly pulled a U-turn without even stopping to say hello. For another 12 years, he studied and taught, and now, after this total of 24 years, he returned again, this time with 24,000 students. Word reached town that a great scholar was coming, and Rachel, her father, and everyone else turned out to greet him. But Akiva's students tried to keep her away, not realizing who she was. But Akiva recognized her. Leave her alone, he said, for my Torah knowledge, and yours, is actually hers. It was only thanks to her that any of them were able to learn. Rabbi Akiva, for all his extraordinary learning, was at heart a humble man. So by now, sometime around the year 100 or so of the Common Era, Akiva had been elevated to one of the most respected and revered scholars of Judaism. The study of Torah was at the center of Judaism and Akiva was at the center of the study of Torah. He was part of a group of rabbinic authorities known as the Tanaim. These were the Torah aces of the ancient world. Intensive studying by day, beach volleyball and bomber jackets on the weekends. You know, like Top Gun, a real tight-knit crew. The Tannaim were part of a continuous chain of sages running from before the common era to our present day, divided by groups. And the Tannaim were the second grouping, active for about 150 years. Their task was writing down the oral law, which might seem weird because, you know, it's supposed to be oral. But with Jews scattered around the world, it was hard to organize people in one place to learn from the great scholars— by writing down the oral law, it could be distributed everywhere, accessible to everyone. The text they produce is called the Mishnah, and it became a core part of the Talmud. And this process of writing down the oral law into the Mishnah was already underway by the time Akiva came on the scene. But what he did was organize the whole thing so that a student could systematically study the Torah, Like a dictionary or encyclopedia, Akiva arranged Jewish law by subject and topic in ways that it hadn't been before, which meant an absolutely enormous leap in being able to transmit Jewish knowledge, wisdom, culture, and values, not only to Jews everywhere, but also far into the future, giving Judaism a permanent system of learning. It was an incredible history-making contribution. Akiva summed up some of those guiding foundational principles in the third chapter of the Pirkei Avot, a compilation of rabbinic ethical teachings. He said, "All is foreseen, yet freedom of choice is given. All is foreseen, yet freedom of choice is given." It's come to be seen as the paradox that sums up Jewish theology, as the American Israeli Talmudic scholar Joshua Culp writes, "Since God is all powerful." God must know everything, including the future. However, if our actions were totally due to fate, we would not be morally responsible for our actions. In order to hold ourselves responsible for what we do, we must assume that we have free choice. Rabbi Akiva seems to acknowledge this dilemma by admitting it out loud. Yes, God is perfect and we have free choice and responsibility for our actions. Both things can be true at the same time. The reason, says Akiva, is that the world is judged with goodness, and everything is in accordance with the preponderance of works. In other words, God judges humans based on the totality of their behavior, not on a requirement that we be perfect in all things. If over our lifetime our good deeds outweigh our sins, God will judge us mercifully. And because we can repent, we can repair any damage that we've done. As one commentary put it, In this way, humans became partners with God to repair the broken world. And in this sense, then, the future of the world is indeed in our hands. Judaism is a religion of action. Yet, if you've ever wrestled with a dilemma of adhering to Jewish law while also trying to place these practices in your modern life, you can thank Rabbi Akiva for the flexibility to do so. He insisted that we ought to firmly abide by the spirit of the law, but not be chained to its letter. Akiva believed in a strict adherence to Jewish law, which in his view was, and ought to remain, unchangeable. But he also believed that Jewish law should be interpreted flexibly enough to allow for changes demanded by modernity. He relaxed some of the halakhic interpretations that mandated, for instance, the separation between men and women, He believed in a greater equality of dignity for women than a strict reading would allow. Let's not call him a liberal, but certainly a liberalizer whose approach to the Torah has influenced Judaism ever since. Which is why Akiva is equally revered in Orthodox Judaism as he is in the more lenient reform movement. There's also an ulterior motive at work here beyond just the internal Jewish discussion about the nature of Jewish law. Akiva and his fellow sages were competing with a rising group that also revered the Hebrew Bible, the Christians, a splinter sect, then, of Judaism. Because of that, Akiva understood that the Jewish people would need more than just the Bible to ensure their continuity and cohesion. The prospect of the oral law, in addition to the written, the Mishnah compendium of texts, the halakha of Jewish law from which Jews could have an infinite supply of learning and study, All of this stood in contrast to the rigid structures that these early Christians were developing. The Christians were emphasizing dogma, the absolute truths laid down by the authority found in the Hebrew Bible. So Akiva and the sages rejected such extreme principles, crafting a more flexible arrangement that depended on communal study and multiple interpretations, all of which helped Judaism both adapt and cohere their traditions in the following centuries. To make a comparison, Christians often waged bloody wars over theological questions, splintering into multiple sects, while Jews, more or less, maintained a fairly cohesive group. And even when Jewish groups splintered, such as with the Samaritans, Akiva counseled against outright rejection. He insisted that Jews could still mix and mingle relatively freely with those who seemed to have strayed from the core teachings of Torah, something our modern time could certainly take a lesson from. Rabbi Akiva's destiny in his early years was set by war between the Romans and the Jews, and so it was again at the end of his life. In the manner of his death, Akiva was elevated from revered scholar to legendary martyr, cementing his place in the Jewish pantheon, compared favorably to the prophet Moses. We know few hard facts about his death. Yet again, it is in the myths that his wisdom rose to the greatest of heights. The destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in the year 70 was followed up by the Jews' last-ditch rebellion against the Romans, which began in the year 132 and lasted for three years. But what three years it was. A Jewish military chief named Simon Bar-Kosiva rose up against the Roman occupation. He was probably angered by the Romans building a new Roman city on top of the ruins of Jerusalem, and most egregiously, erecting a statue to the Roman god Jupiter on the Temple Mount, where the Second Temple had stood. Bar-Kosiva's revolt caught the Romans by surprise and spread across Judea, as his band of rebels overwhelmed the Roman legions. Bar-Kosiva was able to proclaim an independent Jewish state in Judea, anointing himself as its prince. Jewish tradition holds that Rabbi Akiva was the spiritual leader of the rebellion, deeply enmeshed in the revolt on par with Bar-Kosiva's leadership. We have no historical evidence to back up that claim, and it's more likely that Akiva was a more peripheral figure, although many of his students were certainly involved. What we can say, however, is that Akiva recognized Bar-Kosiva as the Messiah, the figure anointed by God to redeem the Jewish people in their homeland, ushering in the end times of everlasting peace and justice. In that vein, it may have been Akiva who gave Bar-Kosiva a new name, meaning son of the star, Bar-Kochba, the name by which he, in his revolt, is known today. Actually, fun sidebar. For one second. The only reason we know that Bar Kokhba's given name was Bar Kosiva is because we found original letters that he wrote during the rebellion. The Jews' early success was minted in coins, which we've also found, recognizing the coming redemption of Israel. Some of them depict the destroyed temple with the phrase, to the freedom of Jerusalem. And we've also found the cramped caves where Bar Kokhba and his followers hid from the Romans, You can crawl around them today, squirming through on your stomach in total darkness as the rebels did for years. All of which is totally cool, and helps us to appreciate the Bar Kokhba revolt as a very real event. But as triumphant as it was, in its early stages, and to whatever extent was Rabbi Akiva's involvement, eventually the revolt failed against the might of the organized Roman army. The end, around 135 CE, was utterly devastating. Roman sources cite that half a million Jews were murdered in retaliation, as nearly a thousand Jewish towns were destroyed. Whomever survived was sold into slavery. The Roman emperor Hadrian sought to so thoroughly wreck Judaism that its people would lose their connection to the land, and hence their inclination to revolt. And in this he largely succeeded. Jews were banned from Jerusalem. Judea was renamed Syria-Palestina, And Jerusalem was called Ilya Capitolina to erase any connection to Judaism. Hadrian banned Jewish religious practice, forbidding the study of Torah and using the Hebrew calendar. And then he came for Akiva. Akiva's execution at the hands of the Romans was probably not directly due to the Bar Kokhba Rebellion, but instead to Emperor Hadrian's related order banning the study of Torah. Akiva kept teaching. When a fellow scholar asked if he was not afraid of the Romans, Akiva related a story. Once, a fox was walking along the edge of the river when he saw a school of fish frantically swimming along. The fox asked the fish from what they were running. "'For men with nets who are trying to catch us,' said the fish. "'The fox told the fish to come up on dry land with him, "'and he promised that they would all live together in harmony if they did. "'Aha,' said the fish, "'we know you foxes are the most clever animals, but you are being a fool. "'For if we're afraid now, in the water, in the place that is our natural habitat, "'then how much more afraid we would be in a place that for us means certain death?' So it is, said Akiva, with us in the study of Torah, our natural habitat as Jews. If we're already in such peril when we study Torah, then how much worse would it be if we gave it up? For his defiance, Akiva and several of his fellow sages were sentenced to death. It was likely either in the year 132, at the start of the Bar Kokhba rebellion, or in 135 at the end. There are several versions about his death. One story relates that as he prayed through his last moments, his students asked how he could be still concerned with prayer at this point. Under such torture, how could he be focused on his duty to God? Akiva replied, All of my life I have been troubled by the verse obligating one to love God, even if God takes your soul. I always wondered when I will have the opportunity to fulfill this verse. And now that it has been afforded to me, shall I not fulfill it? Legend has it that Akiva was tortured to death by having his skin slowly flayed off his body while still alive. Even more legendary is that he is said to have died reciting the Shema, the short prayer that is centermost in the Jewish liturgy. Hear, Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord is one, with Akiva dying upon that last syllable, the word one. By his death, then, Akiva became a martyr who suffered and died for the sanctity of God's name. Judaism doesn't have saints, but Akiva became just about the closest thing we've got. You'd think that his reputation would have taken a hit having backed Bar Kokhba, since it is generally not looked well upon to support a false messiah, as Bar Kokhba turned out to be. Instead, Akiva became the most revered of the sages. His followers, who exalted him, carry on his work long after his death preserving the Judaism that survived the Romans' attempts to stuff it out. From him, we receive some of the greatest works of Judaism, texts that exemplify the values Jewish culture holds most dear. To him were ascribed the highest qualities of compassion, humility, love of Torah, welcome, humor, and courage. As the American Rabbi Beryl Wine has written, Akiva became the water that wears down stone. one more story. Shortly after the destruction of the temple, Akiva and some of his students went up to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem to see what had become of the holiest of places. When his students saw a fox darting amongst the ruins, they wept in mourning. But Akiva laughed. His students were incredulous. What could there be here to be joyous about? Akiva explained that such a sight had been prophesied. In the book of Micah, it is said that Jerusalem shall become rubble, and the Temple Mount is the high places of a forest. A forest, said Akiva, where foxes could be found. But, said Akiva, a later prophecy predicted that there would yet come a time when elderly men and elderly women would sit in the streets of Jerusalem. The first prophecy speaks to the destruction of Jerusalem, the second to its redemption. The first must come before the second, destruction before redemption. And now, since that first had clearly come true, it meant for Akiva that the second one would too. The redemption of Jerusalem would someday be fulfilled, he insisted, and in this he felt joy. And the Talmud relates that his students were comforted. So go today to Jerusalem, and you will see men and women of all ages sitting in the city. Rabbi Akiva was right. Akiva's tomb is located in Tiberias, Israel. However, legend has it that Elijah the prophet came to collect the rabbi's body upon his death and placed it inside a cave, which then immediately closed up, swallowed whole by the earth, and was never found again. Perhaps then, it is wondered, like the prophet Elijah, perhaps Akiva too may still be alive, certainly in the hearts and minds of every Jew. Okay. So moving ahead, out of the ancient world and into the medieval, next time we'll be talking about an extraordinary teacher and leader from the 900s who picked fights, solved crises, translated the Hebrew Bible, wrote books, and carried the Torah forward for a new generation. His name was Sadia Gaon, and we'll get into him next time. As always, my website is JewOddOnO.com, and my email is Podcast at gmail.com. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please consider a donation of any amount to help keep it going. You can find a donate button on my website. And if you'd like get your name up in lights on the site as well. Either way, thanks for listening, everyone. The Heathrow. See you later.